morning everyone and welcome to Riverside Online. We are glad that you are able to join us. We hope you enjoy the sermon. So if you've been journeying with us as a church, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah where the central theme of the book and the central theme of our series is rebuilding that which has been destroyed, which is so apt for us right now after COVID-19. Now, last week, we hit a high point in the story where after all of the opposition, the external opposition and the internal difficulties, the wall was finally built in 52 days, which was nothing short of a miracle. Everybody could see that the hand of God was upon that. And maybe for some of us, we feel like that should be the end of the story. That's the high point. That's the miraculous moment. That's where God showed up, right? We can celebrate that and then we can get back to our normal lives. Now, I said last week that when it comes to these high points, you and I can pray for those things. We can trust God for victories in our lives. But I think for many of us, we have these moments, we celebrate them, we think about them for a few moments, and then we get back to our ordinary lives. And what we're going to see today is that God is less interested in building the wall of Jerusalem. Now, the wall of Jerusalem played a vital role. The city of Jerusalem played a vital role. But what was far more important to God was that he rebuild and reform the hearts of his people. And we're going to see that today. God wants them, as we're using this building theme, to have strong and powerful foundations so that they don't go back into the old habits, which is what got them into trouble in the first place. Now, here's something I've noticed about foundations. The other day, my wife and I were driving to Sanson City. We hadn't been there for a while, and we're looking at these incredible buildings. Now, here's what I don't do, at least anyway, is look at the building and say, what a beautiful foundation. No, I'm interested in the glass and the architecture and that there's a Starbucks in the building. But what if the building had all of those things, but horrible foundations? How long would that building last? And in the same way, when it comes to our Christian faith, we like the sparkly things. We like the glitter. We like the sensational things. And sometimes we even like the superficial things. But we don't often like the foundations. We don't often like putting those foundations down. And in the same way, what good would it be if we have these victorious moments We have these sensational moments, but we don't have solid foundations. So today we are talking about the right foundation, which is going to be God's word. That's what we're going to see in the book of Nehemiah. And it's going to be the encouragement for today. So let's read together Nehemiah chapter 8. And in verse 1 we see this. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So Ezra was kind of the spiritual leader, where Nehemiah was the CEO, the get the job done kind of leader. Verse 2, and so on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, the gathered people, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. I love this picture of God's people gathered and there are men and women. Now, who do you think are the and all who are able to understand? 
Well, that's men and women and the next generation. Men and women and the next generation. And I love this picture of fathers and mothers bringing the next generation up in the understanding of God's word, the foundations of God's word. This is something that we need to absolutely take seriously, especially moms and dads out there. Guys, no one gets saved on the credits of grandma. No one gets saved on the credits of their husband or their wife or even their children. Every single one of us needs to take responsibility for the foundations in our lives. And we need to take the responsibility of bringing a faith up in the next generation and growing and helping their understanding of God's word. This is not something that can be outsourced. Maybe you say, but Stephen, we've got a great kids ministry and we do have a great kids ministry. But let me tell you, especially during lockdown, maybe we get 15, 20, 25 minutes a week. Whereas you've got your kids for dozens of hours a week. Now, what good does it do if when we're a kids ministry, the leaders are so excited about God's word and so excited about foundations and seeing God's activity in their lives. And then they go home and God's word is kind of like just left up on the shelf, maybe even metaphorically gathering dust. Let me tell you that disciples just in the wrong direction. Now, we always trust that what God can do in those 12, 15, 20 minutes can shape their lives for all of eternity. But sometimes it's the other 12, 24, 36 hours of influence in their lives where God's word is treated like a dusty, out of date relic. Sometimes that is so powerful to disciple the direction that our kids go into. And so again, we need to take this seriously. Moms and dads, the whole community and the next generation being trained in God's word and understanding its foundational role in our lives. Let's read on. And so Ezra, he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and the women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now, I'm not one of those people who inherently thinks that tech is bad. In fact, tech, if you understand it, if you are aware of its roles and its pitfalls, that you own it rather than it owning you, it can be a useful thing. I don't think it's inherently bad. However, many of us are unaware of the role it's playing in our lives. And one of the things that it is doing in our lives it is shortening our ability to think and it's shortening our attention span. So we become people whose ideas are formed by Twitter. We take complex ethical or political or socio-economical or theological ideas and we reduce our attention span to 280 characters at a time. And before we say, well, that's only young people, have you seen how every generation is sharing WhatsApp pictures? Every generation is sharing videos. And before that, by the way, we had bumper stickers, which was doing the same thing. And so then we want 15 minute sermons and we want devotions that we can read on our phone in 30 seconds. And again, that's not necessarily bad in and of itself, but if that is the only way that we are fueling and feeding the foundations in our lives. What do you think is going to happen? 
Now, I don't suggest you try this, but I did some research and apparently this is true. And that is a shark can only grow as big as the tank that, is in, that it is in. So put a shark in a tiny fishbowl, at some point it is going to die simply because it cannot reach maturity. Or because of the lack of oxygen and nutrients, it is going to be, have a stunted growth. You see, sharks were meant for the open ocean and for vast spaces in order for them to roam and be these powerful animals. And in the same way, by reducing our attention span to 280 characters at a time and our devotions to 30 seconds at a time, we are trying to grow to maturity in a fishbowl. And we will never reach maturity. Our growth will always be stunted by the lack of nutrients and space and opportunity. So looking at what Ezra did, I think we're going to do this one Sunday and maybe just read the Bible from 6 a.m. to midday. Now, I don't really mean that. But here's what I want to point out is at the end of verse 3 here, it says that all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Guys, God's word is worthy of our attention. And if we're going to give it our attention, that means giving it our time. That means giving it our focus. That means sometimes saying no to certain things in order that we can give our attention and our focus to God's word. Now, I love the fact that we have the technology and the ability to have church online these days. But if what I'm about to say is the only thing you're doing, well, it's better than nothing. But if the only exposure to God's word is a few minutes of catch up while you're on a treadmill, I think that God's word deserves better. I think it deserves more of our attention and I think we can do better. So let's carry on reading here from verse 5. We're not going to read the whole chapter. You can do that on your own this week. But Ezra opened up the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Now, this is not a command. Some churches like to do this. It is not something we always see in the Bible, but it's a sign of giving the word our attention and our, our honor. Verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And what we see here is that God's word inspires worship of God. God's word inspires worship of God. Now let me diffuse something, something that has been said of Bible-believing Christians for a while and is becoming more of a common accusation. And the accusation is against those who are trying to take God's word seriously. And the accusation is one of bibliolatry, idolatry of the Bible. And they often joke saying, well, you know, you guys worship Father, Son, and Holy Bible as opposed to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that can happen. But here's what God wants for us. He wants you to love his word because you love him. Not instead of him, but because you love him, you love his word. But then again, some would accuse us, therefore, of bibliolatry. Well, so last night, my wife and I were able to go out on a date, which was absolutely wonderful. Now imagine, as we sit down, we start looking at each other and then she starts speaking. And imagine I did that thing we've sometimes seen in the movies, you know, that thing, right? Now, that might be adorable the first few seconds, and that's it. 
But imagine every time she tried to speak, I shut her down. And then I just looked lovingly into her eyes. Eventually she would be so upset and so angry. Why don't you want to listen to anything I say? And imagine my response was, no, no, no. It's because I don't love your words. I love you. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I just want to stare lovingly at you. What would her response be? Her response would rightly be, Well, if you do love me, you will love what I have to say. Because what I have to say, it is my words that communicate who I am, what I'm thinking, what's going on in my heart, what's going on in my mind. It is how you love me. It is how you get to know me. And in the same way, we can love God's word because we love him. David, who the scriptures say is a man after God's own heart, a man who loved God, said this about God's word. He said, my soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. So what happens or what I think is meant to happen is we see certain truths about God in his word. And then we see those truths in him. And our heart is moved to worship not of his word, but of him. So here's a diagnostic question. When was the last time your heart was moved to worship because of something you saw in his word? Not because of a, a song or some great music. There's nothing wrong with great songs and great music. I believe they are powerful to point our emotions towards the truth of who God is. But sometimes all they do is stir our emotions and there's no truth in it. So when was the last time you saw a beautiful truth about a beautiful God in His Word and your heart was stirred to worship Him? That is what God wants for us. And that is the, one of the roles this foundation is meant to play in our lives. Now verse 7 gives us the name of all the Levites who are just helping this whole event happen. We get to verse 8 which says, And so they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Now whether you've got a digital Bible or one of these, I wanted to bold highlight underline, making it clear, giving the meaning. So that the people could understand what was being read. This is Craig and my passion. That every time we preach, we are doing this. We are making God's word clear and giving the meaning. So that people can understand what is being read. What I'm about to say may sound controversial, but hear me out here. We can simply read the Bible. Just go through it, turning the pages and read it. God wants more for us. He wants his word to be clear. He wants the meaning to be understood. Let's skip ahead to what happens in verse 12. And then all the people went away to eat and drink. This was after a long day of church, right? To send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy. Why were they celebrating with great joy? Because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Now, we don't have time to do a how to read the Bible course in the next 10 minutes. 
But if I could give you one tip in the effort to make God's word clear, to get to the meaning so that we can understand it. If I could give you one tip for your Bible reading, it is this. Every word in the Bible, every verse, every chapter, every book has a meaning. A meaning. Not multiple meanings. There's a difference between our interpretation, which is sometimes hard to get to. There are some verses in the Bible which my kids will understand immediately, accurately. And then we get like the book of Daniel, the book of Romans, the book of Revelation, which when we try and make it clear, we may sometimes, because it is difficult, arrive at different interpretations. But our united effort is to get to the meaning. The meaning of what it means. You see, there's a difference between what the Bible means and what it means in my life. What it means is what the author intended. What it means in my life is application. How that meaning is to be applied in my life. And good teachers are going to do both. They're going to make the Bible clear and they're going to show you how you can practically live it out in your life. Now, from time to time, I take a bit of a dig at these little uh, devotions that get shared, whether it's on WhatsApp or whatever the case might be. And here's why. See, very often, here's what I see, is that there's a verse at the top of the page, and whoever's writing the devotion skips what the verse means and goes straight into what it means for your life. In other words, it skips the foundation and goes straight into the building. And so what we need to do is ask, what did the author mean? Not, what does it mean to me? What do I feel it means? What do I want it to mean? I mean, guys, this is just communication skills 101. Let's go back to the idea of being on a date with someone. Imagine, and this happens to me from time to time, my wife speaks to me and she says something and means something, but I interpret it in a different way. And so as I respond, she can clearly see that I've missed her meaning. So imagine she stops and says, no, Stephen, that is not what I meant. Now imagine my response to that was, it doesn't matter what you meant, because of what it meant to me was blah, 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 blah. And again, she would be right to say, I don't care what it means to you, because what I really meant was and I would be right to respond by giving that my attention what did you mean over and above what did I want you to mean or what did I think you meant and sometimes this means being willing to lay down certain interpretations even certain interpretations that are meaningful to me sometimes it means being humble and teachable but we need to value the clear meaning of the text and so that we can celebrate it like these people here in verse 12. Now let's read on to verse 13. And on the second day of the month, so after a whole day of church, they came back the next day. Some of us are like, listen, I did church three weeks ago and I'm good. Well, again, that's not how foundations are made. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, 
that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Just picture this with me. They're sitting here hearing the Bible read, being made clear to them. They are beginning to understand it. And then this idea of this festival of booths comes up. And they're like, oh, we don't do that. You see, the festival of booths came after God released his people powerfully from slavery in Egypt. And as they were living in the desert, they were living in booths made out of branches. And this became a festival so they could commemorate this mighty season of God's work in their lives. And so they hear this taught and preached and their response is, oh, wow, look at the date. We are in the middle of the seventh month. We must go do that. Where are the branches? Let us put this into practice. Verse 17 and 18. And so the whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And the joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, in accordance with their regulation, there was an assembly. Here's how not to read God's word. To open it, to read it, maybe it even makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside, to say amen, and then to close it, and then to go back to your ordinary life completely unchanged. That is probably one of the most dangerous things we can do, because if you're not reading the Bible, you, you kind of know it. But if you are reading the Bible, and all you're doing is giving yourself a sense of self-righteousness, but you've got no intention of changing how you think or how you live, that is so incredibly dangerous. The book of James says that's like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and walks away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Instead, the James 1 verses 25 says, but the man who looks intensely into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but by doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. The person who is blessed in what they do is not the person who reads the Bible and feels spiritual for five seconds. The person who is blessed in what they do is the person who looks intensely into the perfect law. And continues to do this. Doesn't forget what they have heard. But they put it into practice. 2 Timothy 3, 3 verses 16 says. All scripture is God's breath. And is useful for a good sermon. No, 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 no. All scripture is God's breath. And is useful for teaching. For new ideas and new understanding. For rebuking. Sometimes that happens implicitly in a sermon. Or sometimes that happens in a counseling session. For correcting, meaning changing how you think or changing how you behave. And for training in righteousness. The purpose of God's word is not to make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. Or to say, great sermon, Steve. The point of scripture is to change our behavior. 
There's a whole bunch of verses on the screen there. 1 Timothy 4, 5, John 15, verses 3, John 17, verses 17. There's a whole bunch more that talks about how God's word sanctifies us, which is a fancy way of saying it changes us. It transforms us. It makes us more into the image of God. And in Christ, Romans 12 verses 2 talks about us being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Because we are fooling ourselves if we come to church or read the Bible or read a book on the Bible and we have no intention of obeying it. Let me say very clearly, I will not shed a single tear if no one from today onwards comes up to me and says, good sermon, Steve. And, and that's not because I don't want or I don't even need encouragement. I value genuine encouragement. But the reason I do what I'm doing is not for great sermon, Steve. The reason I do what I'm doing is because I fundamentally believe in the power of God's word to transform our lives and renew our minds, to correct us, to rebuke us, to train us, to reform us, to rebuild us into a certain type of people. That is why I do what I do. And so please, whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years, we need to be willing to be corrected by God's word. That means I need to be humble. I need to be willing to see new things. Because I want to say to you, there is more. There is more. There is more in God's word than you can ever imagine. And there is more of God to know through his word. There is no ceiling on this. There is more. And so I want to give us an opportunity to respond, but I'm looking for a hot response. So here's a bit of a mental exercise for you. Whether you're at home now or whether you come home after church or after work and you see your Bible sitting on a shelf or sitting on a table, what is your heart's attitude to God's word? I'm not looking for the Sunday school answer. I'm not looking for the right answer. I'm looking for the true answer. Maybe if you're honest with yourself, it's dead to you. It's lifeless to you. Maybe the, what you think and what you feel when you see God's word is it's a tool for debate. It's a tool for being right. And while we can debate God's word, Sometimes we can love debate and we can love being right more than we love God. And that is something we should be so afraid of. Maybe you see this and it strikes fear in your heart. Fear because maybe it's been used as a weapon against you. And you have literally been Bible bashed in an unloving, unbiblical and ungodly way. Maybe you feel guilty when you see this. Guilty maybe because you don't read it. Or maybe guilty because you don't understand it and you don't know what to do about it. But just take this moment 
and admit where you're at. Such a vital first step. Admit where you're at. Get real. Now maybe I can't make you love God's word. I can try. But maybe I can actually try and make you want to love God's word. And so the second quick little thing I want you to do today is to acknowledge, regardless of how you answered question one, regardless of what you just admitted, acknowledge that God's word is foundational. Whether you treat it as foundational or not, just acknowledge that God's word is foundational. Number three, I want to invite you to express desire. Maybe there is a desire being stirred in your heart. God, I do want to treasure your word more. It is worthy of my attention and my focus. It is worthy of my time. I do want to worship you more because of how I engage you through your word. But maybe you're not there. But maybe you're willing to say, God, but God, I want to. I want to be in that place. Stir my heart. Give me new desires and new passions. And then number four, it's going to sound maybe even trite after a message like this, but is just to do it. Do it. You've been exposed to the foundational nature of God's word today. Some appropriate ways that we can put it into practice. But now we actually have to be like that person who looks intently into God's word and continues to do so and does what it says. And so we need to start and embrace a lifetime of learning. You will get frustrated. You will get confused by some of the debates out there. But we need to be committed to a lifetime of learning, a lifetime of growing. And allowing this foundation to become increasingly solid in our lives of faith. And so let us pray to that end. Father, we recognize that we don't always treat your word as a foundation in our lives. We're not always like these people in verse 12 who rejoice because we understand your word. And so we acknowledge where we're at. We admit That we don't always respond according to what is your best for us. But Lord, your word is true. Your word is foundational. Your word is how we engage you. And God, we want that. We want to grow in insight. And we want to grow in our relationship with you. So help us, Lord. Help us as a community. Help us as individuals. So that your word is made clear to us and we can understand it and we can celebrate that. And finally, Lord, give us ways and means and the conviction to put your word into practice. And to commit to a lifetime of growing in this. Father, you have not let us, left us alone. You will never leave us nor forsake us. We engage the living God through your living word. Your words are life and they are spirit. You give us the same spirit that authored these words to help us and to lead us. You give us your body. You gift your body with people who help make your word clear to us. 
And so God, I invite your activity in our lives and amongst our body, your church, to help us grow in these things. In your name, amen.